these women were basically asked to take over the roles of their husband as far as providing food, to do the gardening. On top of that, they already had heavy duties, taking care of the house, raising the children. It became a tremendous burden upon these women. Those at the time period would sit there and say, I'd much rather be a missionary than a missionary's wife because they have the hardest burden. Hello and welcome to Saints. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about chapter 20 of Saints Volume 2, titled Handwriting on the Wall. And we're excited to welcome back Chad Orton, who is a curator for the Historic Sites Division of the Church History Department. So welcome back, Chad. Thank you. So in this chapter, it's the year is 1858, and we start out by meeting a man named Carl Mazur, and he's kind of in a unique position. So when we meet Carl Mazur, he is a tutor for President John Tyler and his wife, Julie. So I'm just wondering, who is Carl Mazur? Where did he come from, and where is he going? Well, Carl was born in Germany. You know, it was illegal to join the church in Germany. Laws were against that. Um, he was baptized at night so that people would not know that he had joined the church. He was a school teacher by profession. And like so many others, he had a desire to gather to Utah. Carl Mazur had played such a prominent role upon the education in Utah. Many people may know him best as the first president of Brigham Young University. He spent some time prior to that teaching Brigham Young's children. He was part of the education movement in Utah. Let's listen to a clip here from the book that tells about the spiritual manifestation that really set Carl on this path to becoming such an important part of our history, our legacy of the importance of education, but why he did it. Father, if what I have done just now is pleasing unto thee, give me a testimony, and whatever thou shouldst require of my hands I shall do. Carl did not know English at the time, so he and Franklin had talked through an interpreter. But as they walked back to the city, Carl and Franklin suddenly began to understand each other, as if both were speaking the same language. This manifestation of the gift of tongues was the witness Carl had sought, and he intended to remain true to his word, regardless of the cost. This must have been just a really powerful experience that propelled Carl on this path to come to the U.S. and to immigrate. Absolutely. Latter-day Saints now are known throughout the world. They know who we are. We are known for good. Carl and others would not know who the church is. And some of those needed signs, one of those signs that the Savior talked about, follow, speaking in tongues, having this experience. And so this was a testimony to Carl as it was to others that this was the true church because of that sign that he received at the time. Very powerful. He was a faithful individual throughout his life that took him, as I think he mentioned, to be a tutor for a period of time to John Tyler, to helping establish a prominent university here in Utah later on. So another friend in this chapter is uh, someone that you're very familiar with and we've talked about in previous episodes. George Q is back in Utah and Brigham's going to give him a new assignment, and he sends him off on a really unique assignment to the east, to Washington, D.C. What's George up to? George has been called on a mission that's basically twofold. One, 
it's his job to try to improve the view of the Latter-day Saints among people in the East. While there, he will help publish a uh, newspaper where the, the word of the saints can come forth so that people can better understand who they are. One of the ultimate goals of this is that it had long been the desire of Utah to become a state. And so not only was he trying to win improved views for the church generally, but he was specifically sent there to help win favor in Washington, D.C., that Utah might obtain statehood. And while George was able to improve people's views of the church, while he was able to win friends for the church, it would be many, many years before Utah actually became a state. And part of the reason was because of the Mormon practice of polygamy at that time. It was something that was viewed very negatively outside of Utah, where women were viewed as if they were slaves as a result of this. In fact, at the time that slavery and polygamy had been brought together by the newly formed Republican Party and labeled the twin relics of barbarism. Yeah, it's kind of a interesting how George is sent on this lobbying mission. You know, we would think of it as kind of a lobbying yeah. or a public relations effort, and it's decades. But today, I think a lots of people, many people would call him the father of Utah statehood because yes. of his decades of work in lobbying Congress as a delegate, but also as a representative of the Utah people. I think that is very fair. So while he is on this mission in the East, he gets called to be an apostle. Can you tell us more about that experience and the situation surrounding it? You know, it's it's really quite interesting. But in the early days of the church, it was not uncommon for the individual to get a notice saying, we've called you to be one of the apostles. We would like you to start serving in this capacity. And George at the time was a fairly young man. He was an individual in his 30s. But he had proven himself in various assignments that he was uh, an individual who was faithful, and he had a great testimony of the Savior Jesus Christ. There is a story that is told while a missionary in Hawaii that Canon saw the Savior. He does not mention that specifically, but he mentions that many times that he talked to him and he heard his voice as one person heard another. So by the time that he was called as an apostle and he's called to be an especial witness of Jesus Christ, he did have that witness already of the Savior Jesus Christ, a personal testimony of the Savior that he had learned about from his experiences. Let's listen to just a little clip here from the book that is a quote from George Q. Cannon's journal about how he felt when he received this call. I trembled with fear and dread, the 33-year-old wrote Brigham soon after learning of the call and joy to think of the goodness and favor of the Lord and the love and confidence of my brethren. Tell us what you think might be going through George Q. Cannon's mind as he receives this call. One, I'm sure he felt like he did with other assignments, that this is beyond my human abilities. But two, he also knew that he had learned through experiences whom the Lord calls, the Lord qualifies, and that he knew the Lord would help him and that he was there to do the work, whatever the Lord asked him to do. I'm sure those were the thoughts that would go through his mind. Cannon was a very humble individual. I'm sure he was thinking, I could tell you a dozen, maybe two dozen people who are better qualified to serve than I am, not the least of which they are older, they've had more experience, but yet Cannon had explicit faith. And 
you know, it's interesting that he served between being an apostle and a counselor to Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, Lorenzo Snow, almost 40 years, the first presidency uh, council of the 12 apostles. So he made a major mark upon the church for many, many years. For those of our listeners who want to learn a little bit more about George Q. Cannon, I just, again, would invite you to visit churchhistorianspress.org. And on the homepage there, you'll see a link to the Journals of George Q. Cannon. It's a really cool site that has his entire journal through all of these years, from his gold mission all the way to his days in the First Presidency. And there's videos there, there's pictures and stories. You can read a lot more about Cannon and his amazing mission. At one point, probably next to Brigham Young, the best-known member of the church in the world. He was literally the face of the church in so many respects and really did a wonderful service as an example of a truly faithful man. So another saint that we catch up with in this chapter is Augusta Dorius. And so she's down in San Pete County, um, in the San Pete Valley, and there's a large community of Scandinavian saints. And I think what's neat about this group is that they can share their customs, traditions, not to mention languages. And so they're having these common experiences. And at age 19, Augusta is called to be the first president of the Fort Ephraim Female Relief <laughs> Society. So, Chad, will you tell us a little more about what's expected of a Relief Society president at this point? What does Relief Society look like? You know, the name at the time says so much about what they expected from the organization, and that was organized to assist individuals. Nowadays, Relief Society meets every sister is at the age of 18, becomes a member of the Relief Society. At that time, it was an organization that was separate. It was under the direction of the church, but membership was frequently separate. I was surprised to learn there were dues. And there were dues that you had to pay. And, you know, Brigham Young, when he moved the saints west, there were certain things. He had the saints focus upon certain aspects. You couldn't run the entire church as it was. And so one of the things is that he dismantled, I'm not sure that's the right word, the Relief Society for a period of time. But once he got into Utah, he tried to reorganize the Relief Society, Benevolent Society, it was called at the time, with the idea that they were there to help the local Native Americans. That was a, a major focus. We've talked about that in some previous episodes about the Indian Relief Societies, the desire to help these indigenous peoples that were really in dire straits. And not all of the communities bought into it. Later on, there were a number of communities who organized Relief Societies with the idea specifically that they were there to help those who had been stranded upon the, the trail. Mm -hmm. So by the time this is seen as an important organization in which they are there to help those, many of these immigrants who are coming, even in Scandinavia, they're coming with very little worldly possessions. They need help getting established. Some of them need help just having language. You know, let us translate for you what the bishop is telling you. They were there to look at all the needs of the local saints and how they could help them in an inspired organization. And someone so young, it says a lot about her. 
because most of those who were Relief Society president at the time, I think, tended to be a little bit older. Well, and it's just neat to hear the differences because although our needs are different today, we still have those needs for relief, you know, especially emotionally and, and spiritually, maybe a little bit more than physically that they were dealing with. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book that describes some of these duties that Augusta Doria Stevens was performing as a 19-year-old Relief Society president. She and her Relief Society sisters wove cloth, made quilts, provided food and shelter for the needy, and cared for orphans. When someone in town passed away, they washed and dressed the dead, made burial clothes, comforted mourners, and preserved the body before the funeral with ice from the Sand Pitch River. That seems like a pretty... Hefty responsibility yeah. for a 19-year-old. Yeah, yeah. It, it's amazing. And, and one of the other duties is that... Um, not mentioned there specifically is that during this period of time, the church is expanding its missionary program. And many of those who are called on missions are older individuals. They frequently don't volunteer. They are called, but they're required to leave their families behind. And so they go out into the field and we focus upon them. But these women and children often struggle to survive. And it often becomes the duties of the Relief Society to help out their sisters who and support them while they are carrying on while their husbands are on mission. I One story I, I love is there was one sister who, between her kids and that, didn't get out to church much. So this inspired Relief Society president, rather than holding a get-together at the church, inviting her to come, they instead held the Relief Society gathering at her house invited all the sisters to come to her house and, and to meet with her and to support her in that regard. I've, this was a tremendous responsibility these women had as Relief Society presidents. Well, and this is an experience that Augusta Doria Stevens is having. Johan and Carl are called back to Scandinavia. Can you tell us more about what it must have been like or what we know about the experiences of women who were left behind while their husbands went off to serve for years on missions? It's hard. I mean, in, in one word, you put it down that it's hard. These women, society was different at that time. There were specific men and women role. And so these women were basically asked to take over the roles of their husband as far as providing food, to do the gardening. On top of that, they already had heavy duties, taking care of the house, raising the children. It became a tremendous burden upon these women. Those at the time period would sit there and say, I'd much rather be a missionary than a missionary's wife because they have the hardest burden. It, it was difficult, even little things. You know, if you read the, the records of these missionary wives, just to write a letter is difficult. Well, a missionary, you can stop what you're doing and write a letter. In fact, they gave them time to do that. As a missionary wife, they had to try to find it amongst their bottling fruit and taking care of kids and everything. It was just so hard. They would struggle to come with food. There was no places for them to go and, and receive assistance. So if their crops failed, they would have to carry on with diminished resources. I, I remember one missionary wife, they didn't have much, but when the cow died, they no longer had milk to put in their porridge. So they had to just eat porridge. They ate it several times a day, and that's all that they were able to eat. We estimate that there were probably about 10,000 women in the just in the 19th century alone who were missionary wives. 
And we seldom look at them, but the, some of the stories that they tell were absolutely incredible. I'll just share you a favorite one of mine that a, a woman named Sarah Peterson is living in Lehigh. And when her husband, this is the early days of, in the 1850s, when her husband is called on a mission. And so he arranges with the local brethren to help her plant her field. That seems helpful. Thank and you. that seems helpful, <laughs> yeah. but no one shows up to help her. So she is left to plant the wheat field herself, which she has never done before. And it is only after she has plowed the field and planted it that the brethren show up, at which point they say, well, you planted your seeds too late. You planted them too deep. You have no hope for a crop this year. Okay, thank you. Yes, and so she becomes quite desperate, and soon everybody's field is growing but hers. And at that point, there is another of the cricket infestations. And in spite of their best efforts, the crickets come through and destroy almost all the fields of wheat that are growing. Just eat all the green shoots. They're and just greet gone. all the green shoots, and there's no hope in the community. Well, as a result of planting her wheat too late and too deep, Sarah's crop starts growing after the crickets have gone through. That's amazing. They eventually uh, refer to it in the community as salvation wheat. So the Lord was able to take this woman who didn't know what she's doing and bless the community. There's a funny story that goes along with this is that one day when she's tending her wheat fields, the water quit flowing on her irrigation turn. And she sends her five-year-old son up to look at the, we'll find out why, and well, soon the water... going to work out well. A five-year-old? <laughs> yeah. And I know, I think my daughter's five. I'm like, okay, go check out why the irrigation isn't Well, working. and that's the problem. All of a sudden, and Sarah's down taking care of the baby, and all of a sudden, the water starts flowing, but her son doesn't come back. So, oh, yeah, wow. so she goes up. And he understood how important the irrigation was. And when he got there, he found out that the dam was broken and he couldn't repair it. But he looked at himself and said, well, I'm about the same size. And so he had plopped himself into the <laughs> irrigation ditch <laughs> to create a diversion dam. And so anyway, so the, this woman who has kind of a little sense of humor says to him, well, what a fine little damn boy you are. Oh. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. So and he said, well, I, you know, I knew it was important. You know, he said, you know, he thought she had swore at him, not realizing she was right. making a play on what he was. I knew how important it was. But she said, you know, you can't do that again because you're the only man I've got until dad gets home. Oh, Chad, that was such a fun story. Do you have any others that you want to share with us about missionary wives and their lives? I do have one that is one of my all-time favorite letters. Uh, this was written by uh, Anthon Lunn, who later became a member of the First Presidency, to his wife, in which basically he tells her to look on the bright side. Oh, this sounds nice. This sounds a, a well-meaning husband thousands of miles away from what is actually going on. Don't complain, dear. It's Don't, all good. It's all good. That's exactly right. Oh. And, and this is what she writes. I'm sorry. I laugh every time I read this letter. You tell me to look on the bright side of life. I try, but I don't find any very bright side. I often wonder if you were tied at home with the children and work and sickness and had to stay with it night and day, and me 7,000 miles away, how bright the picture would be for you. <laughs> I wonder if you would feel as good as you do. I have my doubts about it. You would be looking around to find a wife to help you. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite different with you. 
You can have it quiet and nice, go to bed when you feel like it, sleep good all night, get up and not a child to dress or bother with. And when you feel like doing so, you can take a walk and no baby to carry with you. It is all very well to write and say, don't work, but the children must have clothes and food and it takes work and they must be waited on in sickness and it all wears me out. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's a, that's a bit of truth right there. It is. I have the opportunity as the product manager with Saints to read reviews. We have lots of reviewers that read the drafts. And one of the things that many reviewers commented on about Saints Volume 2 is they loved getting to know some of the people who were at home. So the experiences of these 10,000 women who are at home during the 19th century, I'm so glad you could share some of those stories because it is important and the missionaries out in the field couldn't do it without the yeah. support at home. Yeah. And I've actually served a mission, so I feel like I can relate to the missionary and how it's like, yeah, you can go on a walk. <laughs> you can go, you go to bed and don't have to deal with kids. And then I can relate just as a wife and a mother. And granted, I don't have to plant wheat and plow the field and cook everything from wheat. I don't know. It's just that's such an incredible example of faith and dedication to her family. Well, let's move on to another part of this chapter. We have Emma Smith. Emma's still with us. She's in Nauvoo. Her son, Joseph III, has been invited to participate in what they're calling a new organization. Um, Let's listen to just a little clip here from the book that talks about this new organization and what's happening back with Joseph Smith's family. For many years, Joseph III had shown little interest in leading a church. But on April 6, 1860, after John and Lavina's visit, Joseph III and Emma had attended a conference of a new organization of saints who had rejected the leadership of Brigham Young and remained in the Midwest. During that meeting, Joseph III had accepted leadership over the new organization. So this is the beginning of what comes to be known as the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now known as the Community of Christ. What do we know about the beginnings of this new organization? You know, as we know, for various reasons, Emma chose not to follow the saints west. Emma is a woman that I greatly admire and respect. And I think given what she has gone through with all the years with her husband, you know, his martyrdom, She once said that she never knew if he left, if he had come home, that the trials that she had experienced, I think, had become very great in her life and that she wasn't able to take up another trial. And so she stayed behind in Nauvoo. Part of the frustration she had with somewhat the church is that it was never clear or it wasn't as clear as it should be. The difference between what was Joseph's property and her property that she had rightful claim to and what was the church's property. And so she did not appreciate the settlement and how the church settled it. She felt like she was somewhat treated unfairly. We also know that at the time prior to Joseph Smith's death, there was no set way on how the church would be led. There were a number of different possibilities that were put forth, including the presidency should go from father to son. But for a number of years, she just remained by herself. Brigham Young was very concerned about her. Frequently, he would ask missionaries on their way to missions in either the eastern United States or Europe to stop in and check on Emma just to see how she was doing and whether whether, uh, she needed anything. 
But eventually, her son, Joseph Smith III, agreed to become the prophet, and she became a, a member as, as well. So in this chapter, we meet another person named Walter Gibson, and I don't know who he is or what he does or doesn't do, but it kind of sounds a little bit too good to be true how he was introduced to the saints. Chad, can you tell us a little bit more about Walter? As you say, it does sound too good to be true. The fantastic life of Walter Murray Gibson is what one individual has titled the book that they wrote about him. It does sound exactly like a Hollywood script that you couldn't write this. He had lived quite a fascinating life before becoming members of the church, including one time supposedly uh, in prison under sentence of death in which he was able to escape. He eventually makes his way to Utah where he comes in contact with Brigham Young and he volunteers to become a missionary or ambassador for the church in some of the areas where he has been in Indonesia and Japan. He thinks that he can help out the church. Oh, he's quite a character and someone we're going to learn a lot more about in future episodes. It remains to be seen at this point whether his conversion is real or exactly what his interest is in the church. But I just tell our listeners, buckle up, because Walter Gibson (laughs) is just one of these characters you're not going to forget when you read Saints Volume 2. So the 1860s, I mean, this is a difficult time for the United States, and South Carolina actually withdraws from the United States when... President Abraham Lincoln is elected. And I thought this was fascinating that Wilford Woodruff writes in his journal that basically a revelation that the prophet Joseph Smith had received was being fulfilled. So let's listen to a quote from the book that just explains more about what's going on. We may prepare ourselves for an awful time in the United States, Wilford wrote in his journal on January 1st, 1861. The handwriting has been seen upon the wall, and our nation is doomed to destruction. So with that ominous tone, uh, we'll leave this episode of Saints. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. Thank you, Chad, for being here with us. We always appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. We'd invite our listeners, if you have questions or comments, email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. You can always learn more about the Saints Project. Check out our topics and videos that we've discussed today at saints.churchofjesuschrist.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks for listening.